we doing? New life. Praise God. What a blessing. Thank you, bro. You, 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 oh, you are too. <laughs> Can you turn me down just a little bit, Allison? Thank you. <laughs> Hallelujah. Well, let's engage the Lord about His Word. I believe He's going to speak to us tonight. Father, we just want to reach out to you with our hearts. We thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the privilege. God, we, we are so privileged to have your word written, that we can read it and study it and ponder it and go over it again and again. So many of your people throughout history have not had your word or only pieces of it, but you have blessed us so much. We don't want to take it for granted ever. We ask you now, Holy Spirit, our teacher, to come and to take the words that are in this book that you have breathed. They're not just the words of man. They're the words of God. And they're full of life and power and transformation. They're full of the vision and the beauty and the glory of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would let us catch a glimpse, a view, a better view, a deeper view of who you are. I pray that you would even mark us this night, that you would plant something of eternity inside of us, that we wouldn't uh, go through the motions, but that we would actually be in your classroom, that you would be speaking, that you would be teaching us, and that we would be marked for eternity in a deeper way than we've ever been before. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James chapter 4 is where we are, and um, I want to read verses 1 through 5. I think that's where we're going to uh, camp tonight. James 4, verses 1 through 5, so much uh, richness. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. Um, let's look at these verses, a little bit of detail. I want to camp on um, some of the ideas here a little bit. He's obviously, in chapter 3, he dealt with the fact that they were not getting along well. He talked about the wisdom that comes from above and how that interacts with the community. And what that looks like is, this is so huge, the wisdom that comes from above is not the wisdom that promotes itself and gets its own way. It's rooted in humility. I mean, if, if, if that alone could be really default in our hearts, in all of our relationships. Okay, God, how do I interact in this relationship? Whatever it is, if our default was humility, things would go much better. If our default was humility, things would go much, much better because the humble person, this, this, is, this becomes more and more real to me the longer that I walk with the Lord. The connection point to God's grace in our life is humility. It's like a plug that plugs right in to the grace of God. That plug is humility. And when humility is absent, there's not the connection and the grace doesn't flow into our lives. That's why he says that God gives grace to the humble. There's a channel where grace flows. There's a place where grace flows unhindered. I want to tell you it's the place of humility. 
There's a, gra- there's a place where grace flows unhindered in relationships, and there's a place where grace flows unhindered in our relationship with the Father as well. It's the place of humility. If that was our default, things would be a whole lot different. That's so foreign to our society, isn't it? But that's what the Father calls us to do and to be. So look at verse 1. What is the source of the quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the, is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? So he's using language here. Look at the word quarrels and conflicts. Look at the phrase wage war. All of those are standard um, phrases used in Greek for military issues where they're actually in war. So here's James writing to these believers that are scattered abroad, and they're dealing with issues where they're fighting with each other. They're quarreling, and he's going to go straight at it. Don't, I, I just um, I, I appreciate James because he's really straightforward. He's not sensitive at all. I mean, he just tells you straight up like it is, and I appreciate that. One thing that drives me personally crazy is for Um, somebody to dance all around what they're actually trying to say to you and waiting for you to figure out what they're really trying to say, but they're never saying it. It makes me crazy. So um, if we ever talk, just tell me. Um, Tell me what it is. Just tell me. Tell me what it is. Um, In the early days of our marriage, um, maybe this is an issue in some other people's um, marriages, but um, my wife sometimes would explain me from her perspective to know what she was thinking and um, uh, early in our marriage one time I was sitting and I was playing my guitar just worshiping the Lord and she was trying to get cleaned up because we're in the kitchen getting ready to go somewhere and um, I'm just oblivious to it you know guys how many times are we oblivious like we don't we don't even get it so I tell people in premarital counseling, listen, I tell the lady, like, the, you, you just have to assume, like, that we're really dense. We just don't get it. We don't get it. So you have to use words. And so um, she was clanking around. I didn't even get this. She's, you know, making a lot of noise in the sink with the dishes and clang, 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 like that. And I'm just sitting in there just oblivious to all of it. Like, she's upset, and I'm in there playing my guitar, and um. Uh, she comes out and she has this exasperated look on her face. I'm like, what? What did I do? What's what's wrong? She's like, can't you see we have to get going? And I w- wanted the kitchen to be clean. I said, I didn't know. I I said, lady, you really have to tell me. Like my mind reader's broke. <laughs> I, I I can't figure. So so for ladies, like you have to assume that your man's mind reader is totally broke. Like, we don't get it. We don't pick up on those things that we should pick up on. Sometimes we get it, but a lot of times we don't get it. We're just mind readers broke. How many ladies can testify and say amen? That my, all right, you, you're, you don't want to do that with them sitting next to you. Um, that's the truth. What I love that about James is that he tells it straight up like it is. He's saying, look, you guys, you're fighting. There's war among you. What is the source of your war? Look at this. In verse 1, he uses this word in verse 1 and in verse 3. It's a big word, um, an important word in this context. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? And then look in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. It's the Greek word hedonon, which is where we get hedonism from. It's pleasure seeking. It's seeking what makes us feel good. We're only after our own Um, gratification. It's not just a fleshly thing in the sense of sexuality, but it has to do with whatever I want. This is what I want. I'm going after what I want. And the source of their quarrels, he's saying, it's the fact that everybody's out for their own pleasure. This, this This is a group of carnal believers that he's going after hard here. They're living for their own pleasure. He says some amazing things in here um, about them. Verse 2, he says, you lust and do not have. That word lust doesn't necessarily just mean, again, physical or sexual uh, connotation. But it just means you have strong desire for things and you don't have it. Notice this phrase. So you commit murder. Is that for real? 
what do we do with that verse there? Do you think they were actually killing each other, like coming around the corner? And I, I really have a hard time thinking that they were murdering each other in the church and it was, there wasn't more said about it. I, I think that what he's going after is that the principle in Scripture, like First John three fifteen, that says, if anyone hates his brother, he's a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life inside of him. Just like in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus is going after the hard attitude. You've heard it said that anyone who commits murder is going to go before the court. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with their brother is going to go before the court. See, he's going after the root causes. And I think that's what James is talking about here. Because if anger's played out, what happens? It ends in murder. If you hate somebody enough then if it were to play out and there were no restraints and you weren't worried about going to prison for the rest of your life and losing everything that you had, then that would play out in murder, killing somebody. It's the hard attitude that God is looking at. And I think in what he's saying here, you guys are actually, you hate each other. You're angry with each other. It's because what was their focus? You're seeking your own pleasure. You lust and do not have. Um, you're envious and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel. This is verse 2. You do not have because you up. Because you do not ask. Here, here's where I think he's going here. Were they supposed to ask God? God, give me everything I want to satisfy my flesh. Is that, is that what he was trying to encourage them to do? I think what he's saying is you guys are trying to get your needs met and to get your sense of identity and the things that you think are going to make you happy in life from your own activity. You're going to make it happen. You're going to go in there. You're going to push anybody out of the way that gets in your way. And that's not the way you do it as a believer. He's telling him what we do as a believer is we bow our knee. Here's the default again of humility and go, Father, you know better than I do what I need. You know better than I do what's going to satisfy my heart. How many have found that to be true? How many had a dream and a vision you were going to go after something and God, this is going to make me happy. This is going to satisfy me. And then you get there and you go, what's wrong? Something missing. But the Father, when he brings us into his purposes, when we yield our life to him and go, Lord, I don't know the path that's supposed to be. How many have had a path in your life that is a lot different than what you um, thought that it was going to be? Oh, my goodness. Jad's got two hands up. That's, that would be me. Here I am as a kid. I'm a, I'm a total introvert. I would like to be by myself more than I would like to be with my friends. When I was 10 years old, I would go outside and I would walk and I would be gone for three hours. And what I would do is I would find an open place in the grass and I would lay down and look at the clouds. Like being around people wasn't, I mean, I had friends, but... I was more or less an introvert. So they say the difference between introvert and extrovert is you, if you're introvert, you gain your energy by being alone. So that's me. That's totally me. So then the Lord says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a family of seven children, and I'm going to give you a business where you're talking nonstop from morning until night to customers, suppliers, dealing with people. That's what your business is going to be, where you get texts at 2 o'clock in the morning, emails, phone calls day and night. This is what I'm going to give you. This is not the thing that I envisioned that was going to be my life. But, but can, you, can you say with me, God's ways are better. He is wise and he is good and his ways are better. I never would have planned the way that things have turned out for me. I never would have. <laughs> so many levels, business level, whatever, I wouldn't have planned it. But I know this, I'm so blessed. I say to myself every day, like, is this really real? Like, God, you are so good to me. Did you really give me? The amazing wife that you've given me. Did you really bless me with the children that you've given me? Like, I can't believe it. I don't deserve anything that I have. Have you really placed me in a body of believers that have a heart after you? See, you guys stoke my fire. We stoke each other's fire. But this, this community is a huge blessing. Can, can you say amen? For, I mean, for me personally, I can say this, is, this community is a huge blessing to my heart. It makes me very glad. Um, I wouldn't have found this. I wouldn't have made my own way. God is wise. He knows. So 
We don't try to get our own thing and get our own way. What were they going after? Probably prominence. Usually when there's fighting in church, there's fighting over position and authority and uh, influence and decision and direction and all those kinds of things. It's a fight over leadership. It's a fight over direction. What was the source of all of that? You're, you're seeking your own pleasure. You're seeking what's going to make me happy. You're going after what you think in your mind is going to be the deal. This is what's going to satisfy me or this is what I think is right. Father says humble. Default is humble. Humility. You ask and do not receive. Okay, so, so let's look at the end of verse 2 again. You are envious and cannot obtain. You fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not what? You do not ask. You don't do it my way. You don't say, Father, you bring it to pass in my life. I get the whole planning thing. I get the whole vision thing. But here's what I found out. I don't think I've ever met a person in my life that I, that I know of that said, you know, when, when I was 18 years old, I had this vision of the way God was going to do things in my life and like one, two, three, four, five, and when I'm this old, I'm going to do this and I'm that. I've never seen those actually come to pass. Those usually all get burned. It doesn't it don't work out that way. Because the Father wants us to live. It's not that he gives us a plan and he goes, I'm going to show you the whole, how many know? I'm going to show you the whole thing. You got it. Now you know exactly what's going to happen. You got your calendar here. You can mark every year these things are going to happen. That doesn't happen that way. He gives us the next step because he wants us to live in dependency on him. This is the humility thing that connects us to his grace. This is the humility thing that can I, Father, what's the next thing? I don't know what the next thing is. He goes, I know because I haven't shown it to you yet. Yeah, but Lord, if you just, no, I, I show you the next step. This is what I want you to do now. This is the next thing. I'm not showing you the rest of your life because I want you to live in dependency on me. And it may take turns that you don't want to turn. But what he wants to train us to do is to get used to just going, okay, this is the next step. This is the next step. He wants to train us to do that. This is the next step. Oh, Lord, if you'll show me the next five steps, I'll take one. He said, no, no, no. That's not how it works. You take one, all the rest of the pathway is dark. But you have light on the one step. You take that one step. That's called the place of dependency. In the Christian life, in the spiritual life, it's exactly upside down of the natural life. We try to raise our kids to be independent, Right? To be able to make their own decisions and go, and, and th that's right in one sense. But in the spiritual life, the more mature that we become, the more dependent we are. And the more, here's, here's, the, here's the kicker, the more comfortable we are being dependent. Because we know we can trust the Father to lead us in the way that we should go. Because we look back and our experience works hope because we see you remember that? Like, I never would have figured out how he was going to get from there to here. <laughs> but he did it. It went like this. But here we are. Dependence, that's humility. Dependence is humility, and that's trusting in the Father. He wants us to live that way. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Um, a lot of translations say something like that, wrong motives. In the margin of my Bible, it says, because you ask wickedly. Come on, James. <clears throat> you ask wickedly so that you may spend it on your pleasures. What, what would that mean, that we ask for something from God wickedly? Here's what I think. This is... This is what I think the issue is here. We're going to get down to it in verse 4. But throughout this thing, asking wickedly is asking God for things that reinforce our love for the world. God, give me fame. Make me famous. Give me that record deal. Make me a millionaire. Raise me up so everybody can see me. Make me a YouTube sensation. It's really, you, you know that that's out there, right? Everybody wants to be famous. Surveys that were done with um, a younger generation by far saying that their number one goal in life by far was to be rich and famous. It's deception. And the father says, if you're asking in that way, 
that's asking wickedly because that actually is working against our relationship with the Father. Because if we ask for things that actually reinforce our love for the world, then we're asking for things that will taint our heart and shut off our love for Him. How many of you know your capacity to actually handle money? Do you? What if you won the lotto? No, for real. What if you won the lotto? What if you inherited from Uncle George $3 million? You know, I got a letter one time from a lawyer in England, and um, it, was ad- it was addressed to, to me from my Uncle George Nichols in, in England, and the letter was from Esquire so-and-so from a, from a lawyer's office in England, and it said, um, you're a relative of this man. He died without having any family or relatives, and he has an estate worth 3.2 million U.S. dollars, and we want to help you get it, and we'll, we'll split it with you for, you know, X amount, but you have to step forward and file the paperwork and stuff and send $200. (laughs) So I took Uncle George's letter and put it in the trash because it was obviously a scam. But here's the question, for real, that we ask ourselves. Like, do we even know our own capacity to handle blessing from the Lord like that? What what would we do if we had enough money where we would never have to be dependent again? We could buy anything we wanted to. We could buy a house in Bermuda. We could buy a house in the mountains. We could do whatever we wanted for the rest of our lives. What effect would that have on you spiritually? Does anybody in here know? Like, I, I don't think you know. But I know the Father knows. And if we pray prayers, that I know that's an extreme example, but if we're praying prayers like that, he's gone, you, you, don't, you don't know what that would do to you. You don't know what that would do to you. If you had no sense of dependency anymore, and you didn't have to work anymore, and you didn't have to trust the Lord anymore, like for most of us, it would, it would ruin us. It would kill us. The Lord knows. You know, God makes people rich. He, he, he has throughout all of the Bible, but he doesn't make people rich whose hearts are covetous and who it would ruin and destroy because he loves us. Um, so I think that we should ask for the Lord, like Proverbs 30 says, give me what I need, Father. I don't want to steal. I, I want to be able to provide, but, but don't give me more than I can handle. I don't think we know what that threshold is. And so the place of humility is, Father, you know. You know what I can handle. I will tell you this. The scriptural principle is is that if the father sees somebody that's always sowing what he gives to them, then he's like, I give seed to the sower. I give seed to the sower. If if you're always looking for a place to give money away, if you're always looking, Father, what do you want to do with this money? He's going, I give seed to the sower. I don't give seed to the hoarder. I don't give seed to the one who puts their trust in the seed and go, oh, I'll never let this go now. That's so foolish. Just let it go. Like You're not going to take one cent with you when you die. Not one. But you can do a lot of good with it now. Let's just live free. I just want to be free. How many, how many would love to be free from money? Just free. Just don't let it cling to you. Live like this where you can't curl your little fingers around it and take ownership of it. It's not yours anyway. It's the Father's. Here's what I know. When he sees hearts where it doesn't stick to your heart, if stuff doesn't stick to your heart, then I believe he'll give it to you because he knows it'll flow right through. If it sticks to your heart, he's not going to do that because it'll ruin you. It'll taint you, and it'll take away your love for the Father, and it instills in us a love for the world. So asking wickedly is asking for things that reinforce our love for the world. So the world is the values, the pursuits of those who don't know God, right? This is the mores that live in our society, the world system. This is, these are the attitudes, everything that's out there. It's a whole spiritual atmosphere of culture. 
That's, that's, that's what the Bible talks about when it's talking about the world in this kind of a context. It's not the ball, it's the earth. It's not even necessarily the people on it, but it's the spiritual atmosphere, the values, the pursuits, the mores, the cultural um, drawing. That's what the world is. He's going, um, I'm, I'm not going to give you things that are going to reinforce your love for the world because there's, um, there's love for the Father and there's love for the world, and they're mutually, what? Exclusive. Here, here's, here's where we gotta go. This passage is, is powerful, and we're gonna get into, I wanna talk just a little bit here about the jealousy of God. Um, it's not a subject that we talk about too much. But to me, the jealousy of God, like it says, says in verse four and verse five, Verse 4 and 5 of James 4 says, You adulteresses. Where did he get that from? Because they were pursuing their own pleasures. They were seeking after everything for that made them feel good. You adulteresses, you do not know, or do you not know, question, that friendship with the world is what? Enmity, hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself a what? How many, how many like James' direct way? James, really say what you want to mean, dude. Like, say what you mean. Yeah, well, if you love the world, then you're an enemy of God. How's that for straight up? He didn't tippy-toe around and go, you know, you might, you might just really want to pray about that and, you know, get a little bit more. Uh, just, just, I just really feel like you should just pray about that a little bit. Like, he's like dude, listen, if you love the world... You make God your enemy. Oh, well, just say what you mean then. All that's in the world, John said in 1 John 2, you know this passage. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Diminished in him. It's just not, it's, no, it's not in him. He said, this is a big deal. How many want the love of the Father to flourish in your life? Wait, would you really? Because what this is all about is not about rules. It's not about legalism. It's not about forced behavior. This is about the fire of God's passion and love for you. The jealousy of God is his fiery love for you that wants you for himself. I would just love to have a more intimate relationship with the Father. Here we go. Here we go. It's hard to have an intimate relationship, honestly, in a, in a marriage. Let's just use a marriage. But yet, all through the day, I'm texting some other woman. It's hard to do. Oh, you legalist. No. It's not about legalism. It's not even about regulating behavior. It's about love. It's about the Father's heart. Let me, can I tell you something? The Father's heart of love. We talk about love of the Father. Um, it's more passionate and more intense than what you think. His love is fiery love. His love is jealous love. His love is, I want you all to myself because I bought you and paid for you. You're my bride. It's the same way any man would be if his wife was like, hey, baby, you think it would be okay like if I went out on a date with somebody else? No. Oh, you must be a legalist. Just legalism. You got legalism in your mind. What's the big deal? I'm not going to sleep with them. just want to go out and have a good time with them. How's that feel? How's that feel, guys? How's that feel, ladies? How's that feel? I was like, no, of course not. What are you even thinking? Oh, you're just legalistic. No. I'm in love. And love is supposed to be exclusive. It's exclusive. That's the power of sexuality inside of the covenant of marriage. It's shared in a way that nobody else in the world can share it. 
It's exclusive. It's supposed to be that way. That's why it's powerful. That's why the enemy is constantly trying to destroy it and pervert it and twist it because he knows it's powerful and it twists people all up when they get it outside of its context. Should I go on? Friendship with the world. Hostility with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is about love. Verse 5, or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he made to dwell in us. ESV says this, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns? This is the force of the word. He's yearning jealously over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. He yearns jealously. Message translation says he's a fiercely jealous lover. Exodus chapter 34, I want to go through this passage because it's, to me, <coughs> to me this is the greatest, um, this is the greatest motivation in my life to holy living. The greatest motivation in my life to holy living is not that I'm afraid I'll get caught. It's not that I'm afraid I'll go to jail. It's not that I'm afraid I'll lose my reputation. It's that, not every day, but it's that I felt and I do feel the Father's yearning heart over me. And I hear his voice that he called over me and go, you're mine. I chose you for myself. I want you for myself. See, we need this. We talk about the love of God in a very sterile kind of a way sometimes in the church. And the love of God is a fire. And when it gets inside of you, you go, my God, why do you love me like that? I mean, he does. But he's passionate. His love is passionate. That's what the whole issue of jealousy is. He's not, I just like, I think you're a really nice person. It's not like that. He's passionate in his love for us. That's what keeps me. That's what keeps me from making stupid choices. Do you know that? I feel the Father's yearning over me and his love over me. I've been thinking today, you know, how John describes himself in his own gospel <laughs> as the disciple that Jesus loved. Do you think that's because he thought Jesus loved him more than the other disciples? Do you think Jesus loved John more than the other disciples? I don't think so. I think it's because John got marked with that. He felt the fire. He wanted to get as close to Jesus as possible. He laid his head on his chest. God, I just want to be close to you. And when he did that, he got marked with the love of God. Like he was marked, he's marked with it. So he knows his identity. This is so freeing. Like this is, I've had this kind of a mark in my own heart. When I left ministry after a really difficult time, we came home to do home church years ago. It was a really brutal, rough situation. It didn't intend to start that way, but it just was. It was really, really hard for two years. And when I stepped out of that situation where I was ministering, consistently preaching and all that, I didn't know who I was. I couldn't figure out who I was. Like, who am I now? I don't know who I am. I'm not preaching. I'm not doing that. Who am I? And the Father took me through all kinds of uh, healing and surgery over those two years inside of my own heart and showed me all kinds of mess in there, which he extracted and still is doing so. But he spoke to me so plainly one day in prayer. He said, you tied your identity to ministry. And he goes, I don't ever want you to tie your identity to ministry or anything else that you do. This, these are the words that he spoke to me that marked me. <laughs> they still mark me. It's stamped inside of me. You can't see it, but it's stamped inside of me. He said, this is who you are. You're mine. Get that into your head. This is who you are. What is your identity? <laughs> I belong to him. I've been bought with a price. He loved me so much that he gave his life for me because he wanted me. And he's constantly working in me to cut away and wean away the things that keep me from deeper and deeper love. Because his passion is like a fire 
I don't know if you feel that much. I hope that you do. I hope if you don't that you pray, Father, help me to feel that fire that you have for me. Because my experience is this, that churches are full of people who sing words like, you love me, God, but they don't feel the fire of that that marks their life when they go out and somebody propositions them or offers them drugs or some other crazy thing. That fire keeps you in the same way that that fire from my wife keeps me from even considering like having an affair. To me, that's insanity. I've been straight up propositioned on job site by good looking women. One said to me, you and me would have really pretty babies. (laughs) That might have been a lie, but. (laughs) Was I tempted? Honestly, I wasn't. Like, (laughs) I love my wife. I'd be a fool. That's when I said, when you got a filet mignon at home, you don't go after no green bologna. (laughs) That's true. You know, you have to cut that off. You can't play with it. That's honestly how I feel. Like I, I'd be stupid. Y- you you see the connection in our relationship with the Father, like when we're marked by His love. When we feel the flame of His love, it keeps us from doing stupid things. We don't like struggle with going into this or going into that because there's something like you you just say to yourself. <coughs> I would be a total fool to break confidence with this love. Father's heart for us is passionate. It's fiery. He wants us. Let, let me read you this passage out of Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to read verses 10 through 16. And I want to just talk about this for just a minute because James uh, brings this subject up about the jealousy of God and how he yearns over us. So look at Exodus 34, verse 10. Then God said, Behold, I'm going to make a covenant. (laughs) This, This is a lot like marriage. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among the nations, and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going. Hope you can see the parallel here. Or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their Asherim, their idols. For you shall not worship any other god. Notice this. Listen listen to God's self-revelation of his own heart. Listen. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. What, what does that mean that his name is jealous? It means at the core of who he is, he's jealous. There's an exclusivity with his people that are in covenant with him. He makes a covenant. God doesn't love everybody the same. Can I, can I tell you that from Scripture? He doesn't. He loves his covenant people in a special, passionate way. He loves those who reject him in the way that he offers the gift of his salvation and the gift of his love. He brings the rain. He brings the blessing. But he loves his own people that are in covenant with him in a special, different way. There's a fire in that. There's a jealous, passionate love that he loves his people with. Verse 14 again. 
for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they would play the harlot with their and then play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat a sacrifice and you might take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You, you, you hear the language here. This is about adultery. Why? Because God said, I'm making a covenant with my people and it's exclusive. I'm jealous. My fire burns over them because I love them. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Let me give you, can I just give you seven principles out of this passage real quick, real quick. Here's number one. God says he is a jealous God at the core of his nature. You say, well, no, God has actually, he's gotten better now that the cross has happened. He's, he's really, he's really has gotten better. This is called heresy. Okay? God doesn't change. His essential nature is always the same. Is he still jealous over his people? Did, did James say it in the New Testament? Do you know that there's several passages in the New Testament that warn his people against idolatry? The last verse in 1 John, little children, keep yourself from what? From idols. Yeah, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 to the Corinthians that were going into the temple and partaking of the sacrifices of the temple gods in the culture. You know why? Because business was intertwined with idolatry in the culture. So like if you wanted to have your business prosper and you wanted people to do business with you, you need to go to their little rotary club deal, except it wasn't rotary, it was Ashira, where they have a little thing where you bow down there and you drink the wine and you sprinkle the little libation down there and go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah but I really, really don't mean it. This is just for business, Lord. And Paul said, do you want to provoke God to jealousy? What are you doing? You don't do that. <laughs> his love burns at the core of his nature. He's jealous. Second point, God's jealousy is only for his covenant people. That's verse 10. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm making a covenant with you. It's a special. It's a marriage. Third thing, God's jealousy involves strong emotion. I don't know if we, I don't think we feel this today. I don't think we feel the passion of God's emotion for his people. Paul called it the affections of Christ, but in the Greek, it's the bowels of Christ. <laughs> Your guts. Like, he loves you with his guts. I mean, it's, his jealousy involves strong emotion. Listen to this from Greek and Hebrew scholars. Both the Hebrew and Greek words for jealousy refer to the intensity of emotion involved, with the Hebrew especially stressing the rising of color in the face. In each case, it seems to indicate an ardor or zeal for something believed to be long properly, exclusively to that person. That's emotion. You start to see the blood rise in their face. Strong emotion. It's perfect. See, human jealousy is tainted with insecurity and fear of loss, but God's jealousy is perfect and it desires you and me to be all for himself, rightly so. Guys, how are you with sharing your wife? It's a non-starter. God's the same way. He doesn't wanna share with idols. Friendship with the world is spiritual adultery. This is powerful. Number four, God's jealousy is aroused by idolatry. 
Verse 14, you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Worshiping other gods. This is the whole issue with the world. What is idolatry? Can anybody name it? Is there, are there any idols in our culture? What are they? Somebody call them out. Huh? Entertainment. Success. What'd you say? Fame. Yeah. What else? Yeah, money. Yeah. How about physical beauty? How about sensual pleasure? I'd say those ones that got called out, they're, they're on the top of the list, the idols in our culture. You, you know how you can tell what the idols are in a culture? It's what people sacrifice the most for. It's what they pay for. Who are the highest paid people in our culture are the athletes, entertainers, singers, because we pay for entertainment. We're going to pay for that. Movie stars, they get paid a stupid amount of money. And the reason is because we pay for it. We want it, so we're going to pay for it. In the culture, how much money is spent on beauty aids, you suppose? On diet books, on diets, beauty aids, clothing? Come on. Now, Plexus is for health, brother. That's not for me. <laughs> are, are there... So, so, so can I ask, can I ask, do we partake of the idolatry in our culture? And is that a problem with the Lord? You mean we can't watch sports? No, I, we don't worship it. It doesn't preempt everything about our life. We're not bound by entertainment. We don't spend half of our paycheck so we can have Netflix and we can watch movies twice a day. legalist no what cut listen we just have to be honest and go father is what is taking away my view or my experience of the fire of your love for me because i can tell you something that when the fire of his love embraces you a thousand ills in your life are cured right then they're cured you're prone, you're being prone to wander. It gets cured when you feel the fire of his love wrapping around you and you go, what was I trading this for? What was I trading this for? What a fool. It's like the little boy who got a brand new bicycle, real nice one. And his little buddy came up and said that, hey, dude, like, yeah, that's a really nice bike. But you know what? I've, I've got a magic stick. No, for real. I mean, this thing, you don't know all the things that this can do. And, and the boy ends up trading his bike for the magic stick. He got his bike back when his parents found out. And then the color began to rise in their face. <laughs> do we not do that? Do we not do that sometimes? And, and, and my heart is, look, this is not about legalism. Holiness is about beauty before the Lord. Read Psalm 45 at one time where, uh, uh, sometime, where it talks about how the bride is all glorious within. It's talking about the marriage with the king, and it's a messianic psalm, and it's talking about Jesus marrying his bride, and the bride is all glorious within. She only has eyes for him because everything else she knows is trash compared to him. I, oh, that's like what Paul said. I counted everything all my reputation, all my schooling. I sat before the grade. I had three PhDs from Harvard. Gamaliel. It's all dung, he said. It's dung. It's trash. Don't you see what I'm seeing in comparison with the surpassing value of knowing Jesus? This is garbage. It's trash. It's no good. See, we can do lip service to that, but when that grips our life, we're free. We're free. passion of the Father and the flames wrapping around my heart and my soul. In the Gospels, Jesus, <laughs> he says some things that we would expect where he talked about idolatry. Right? He said you can't worship God in what? Mammon. Yeah, that's, mammon is the name of a God. He gives money a God's name. It's worshiped so freely. 
But there's some things that Jesus says in the gospel that are a little bit surprising as far as the whole idolatry thing. If you want to be my disciple and follow me, then you have to hate, this is a really emotional word, your father, your mother, your brother, your wife, your children, and even your own life. You mean those things can be an idol? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Children are an idol in our culture in some ways. They're an idol. Parents live vicariously through them. But here's the deal with kids. God has entrusted them as a stewardship to us to raise them in the way that he wants them to be raised so that we can release them to do the thing that he wants them to do because they're not ours, they're his. So we have to keep in mind, not whether little Johnny is going to have a degree and he's going to make a six-figure income when he gets out of college. We have to keep in mind, Lord, what did you make little Johnny for? Because you made him for your pleasure and for your glory. If you want him to make a six-figure income, let's teach him how to give now. So he's not an idolater who's successful. What good is that? But what if the Lord says, I want him to go on the mission field? Praise God. I want him to preach the gospel. Praise God. Whatever it is, we need to find out and we need to promote that because they're not ours. But there's an idolatry in our culture. We know we run around homeschool community for a long time. There's idolatry with children where everything in the world revolves around them and the kids know it and it doesn't help them to love the Lord. Can I say one of the greatest things that you can do, husband and wife, for your children for the sake of their soul, obviously, is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and let them see that you love God more than you love them and they're not your idol. And secondly, your kids need to understand that they're actually number three in your life and your love because God himself is your passion but you need to show them that you love your spouse more than you love them. <laughs> That's true. So many marriages are dysfunctional because the mom loves the children and neglects the dad, or it could be vice versa. And then when the kids leave the home, they don't know who they are or what. What's, what's going on with this relationship? The marriage relationship is more enduring than the child relationship. Children are like fishing. You catch and release. You catch them at the birth. You raise them up in the way that the Father wants them raised. You create an atmosphere where the Holy Spirit can do His work inside of them. And then you launch them out because they're the Lord's. Anyway, they're not yours. This is the glory of child rearing. We're raising disciples for Jesus that can go change the world wherever they go. Not somebody we can live vicariously through and go, you know, my boy's really successful in business. Who cares? Is he successful in God's eyes? Is he doing what God wants him to do? Has he got a heart for the Lord? Is he going to raise his children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord? I don't care if he owns 10,000 businesses and he's a multi-schoolionaire. I don't care. You know what? The Lord's not impressed with riches. He paves the streets with gold. It's nothing to him. Come on. I'm getting on a roll now. There's idolatry in our culture. Here's, here's the thing. The Father's heart. Listen. The Father's heart for you is filled with fire passion he called you he chose you before there was time he chose you before you messed up because he wanted you friend Souter how foolish is it to trade anything for that it's foolish it's absolute insanity don't do it last few points Verse number five, 
in this passage, idolatry comes very often by our ascribing the values of, of the culture. We're ascribing to the values of the culture around us. This is verse 12 and 15. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going. And then verse 15, otherwise you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And they would go play the harlot. See, idolatry is very often caught from our culture. There's so many things that we never question, that we need to question. Like, Father, is, it, is this you? Is this okay? Is this what you want? Not everybody's doing it. You know, that, can, can I tell you that that is an excuse? No, it doesn't even reach the ceiling. The Father's like, no. Everybody's doing it. Every Christian's doing it. I don't care. The, the issue is, is my heart more on fire or less on fire when I'm doing that thing, when I'm choosing that? Come on. Number six, removal of idols requires courageous, decisive action. Verse 13, here's what I want you to do, he says. You're to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their sherem. Do you see? Here's the issue with the father. He says, I want you to go and tear down the idols. In your own life, wherever you see them, cut them down, tear them down. He's not just saying, just, just lay them down, wrap them up in paper because you might need them later. No, he's saying, cut them down, smash them. <laughs> Let those sherem be used again. Burn them. I can use those idols again. But here's what I know. Because of his father's love. This is the jealousy of the Lord. This is what James is talking about. This is what he's talking about in Exodus. If we don't do that ourselves, then he has ways of going after those idols in our life. Can, can I tell you, it's better to cut them yourself. It's way better. Cut them yourself. Cut them. The Lord shows you something in your life that's idle, a little pole. Hey, brother, what's that little pole in the corner of your living room? Oh, well, that's, that's nothing really. It's just a sheer pole. Dude, cut it down. Get it out. He wants us to confront the issues ourselves, but if we don't, he will. That's his jealousy. If we don't, he will. That's his jealousy over us. <laughs> yeah. If we could feel the depth of the Father's love and heart for us and feel the fire of his jealousy over us, it would change a lot of things. And the last thing is that idolatry is a heart issue of spiritual unfaithfulness. You, you see, he said over and over again that they were going to play the harlot. Isn't that amazing, the parallel that he gives of adultery? And this is what James is drawing off of this whole amount of passages in the Old Testament that deal with that. So what's, what's the takeaway? What's the application for us as believers here in the 21st century sitting in this sanctuary in America? I think the takeaway is the Father's heart for us is way more passionate than what we think. And the upside of a loving covenant relationship with the Father is way more up than what we think. We just need to get rid of the things that quench our fire and make us so we don't feel the drawing and the passion of the Lord. I, I, I carry a burden in my soul because when I first got saved, as totally ignorant as I was, I, I mean, I say it was as dumb as a box of rocks spiritually, and it's true. I didn't know anything. But here's one thing that I learned. The Father took me. I knew nothing. As I began to cry out to him over and over again, he revealed in me and to me his love. I still need to go a lot deeper on that. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But he revealed to me that fire. I felt it. I felt it burning stuff away, and I didn't even know why those things should go away. I just knew the fire in, of his love over me was burning those things away. And, and by God's grace, um, I, I've never doubted that love. 
And it's been such a huge blessing for me in my life. And I carry a burden because I see in congregations everywhere that there's people everywhere that they don't have that sense of confidence in the Father's love and His desire for them. And it changes everything. It changes everything. It makes holiness a joy. Do you know it's supposed to be a joy? It's so beautiful to be close to the Lord and to feel that fire. It's so beautiful to finally get our values to where we love what He loves. That's so beautiful. And I just, I just want more of that myself. I want a lot more of that. I want to feel that fire of His love over my life. And, and I, I want it for you. I want it for all of His children. I, I, it's just, it so amazes me how passionate the, God, the Lord is. We talk about His love like it's, I don't know, common. But dude, it's so radical. This is so radical. And it changes everything. It cures a thousand ills. I've seen this pattern. I'm going to close with this. I've seen this pattern a lot. Had a guy working for me a number of years ago. And um, he had the pattern of coming to the Lord, be all in, slowly grow cold, go back into drugs and drinking. That, that pattern would just repeat it over and over again. And he came to work one day, I remember. He worked with me for a little while. He came to work one day, and I said, bro, how, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing really good. He said, I've been going to church Every time the doors are open, I've been paying my tithes. I've been praying and I've been trying to memorize some verses. And there was just something, not that those things are wrong. How many know that those things aren't wrong? That's not, they're not wrong. But in his case, that was the measure of his spiritual life. What I'm performing means that now I'm doing good. <laughs> and I said, no. No, no, that's not why you're doing good. You're doing good because Jesus died in your place. He put his spirit inside of you, and the Father loves you with a crazy, burning, jealous love, and he's drawing you every single day to himself. That's the ground you're standing on. It's the grace of God. It's not what you're doing. It's not those eight things that you think make you do good. It's the Father himself and the relationship and the love that he's poured into your life. That's what makes you do good. That's what makes you want to do those things, but you can't build on that as your foundation. A couple months later, bam. Crash and burn. Same pattern. Why are you building on? Oh, my goodness. If we could be caught up in the Father's passion and love, His jealous, burning heart for us. He drew us into a covenant. Do you know it's all of grace? He, he chose us before there was time. He said, I want you to be married to me. I want you to be mine forever. I'm going to draw you into a covenant through my son and his blood. And I'm throughout the endless ages of time, I'm going to lavish my grace upon you. Dude, that's doing good. Good day, bad day. It doesn't shake that. That's the foundation. This is the foundation. This is the fiery love of the Father for you through His Son. Let's pray. Father, thank you. God, you're so amazing. Oh, Father, how amazing you are. How good you have been. How astonished we should live at the amazing love that you have poured out upon us and invite us into. I do pray, Lord, for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters, Lord, that we would feel the fire of your love and it would burn away the chaff, but it would draw us in to such a deeper place with you. 
that all of the excuses would go away, that all of the distractions would go away, and that you would draw us into a deeper place with you, that the allurement of this world would fall away because we're looking into those eyes that are a flame of fire that burns. It not only burns the chaff away, but it's a jealous fire that woos us in to your heart. Oh God, may we recognize and see our identity as the ones that Jesus loved. That's who we are. And the ones that the Father is drawing into eternity with himself. I ask, Lord, for grace to perceive and to understand and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Help us, Lord so easy to talk about it but God we need to know and to experience and I pray that you would grace us that you would draw us in that you would surprise us with your passionate heart that you change us in Jesus name